Merry Christmas, everybody. Good-looking group of people. Glad you're here. It's already been said today, but thank you for driving in the snow today. I'm from Atlanta. I don't know what this white stuff is. I've read about it. I've seen postcards. Really, seriously, most of my life I've lived in San Diego, California, 72 degrees all year round, and now Atlanta. So if we see a snow flurry, we just shut it all down for a week, you know? Um, well, if you're new here, we're in the middle of a series, kind of a Christmas series, not kind of, it's a Christmas series, unashamedly. Um, we always take the four weeks leading up to the Christmas holiday to, um, to really get our hearts in the right place and our minds in the right place to celebrate well the birth of Jesus. And um, so we call this series Expect the Unexpected, and I want to start in a little different way today. I want to start with a riddle. I'm going to give you a riddle to answer, Okay. This is a, an English riddle that's been around for years. In fact, you probably have heard it before. In fact, if you've heard it and you know the answer, don't say anything out loud. But if you don't remember the answer, if you haven't seen this before, I want you just to ponder what the answer might be, okay? We're going to put it up on the screen. So here it is. A father and his son have a car accident and are both badly hurt. They're each taken to separate hospitals, and when the boy's taken in for an operation, an old surgeon says, I cannot do surgery because this is my son. How is this possible? Now, I want you just to ponder that for a minute. If you were baffled, even for a moment or a split second, it's because of something I'm going to talk about this morning. Um, we have assumptions. You do know, by the way, don't you, that the answer to this question, how could this be possible, is that the surgeon was the boy's mother, not his father. The father was with him in the accident. But the reason we didn't think that right away is because we have this assumption that old surgeons, especially old ones, could not be females, right? We'd never say that about a lady, right? But isn't it true? We automatically think in our mind, the surgeon, the dad, how could this be? And we're baffled because, because assumptions give us blinders. We don't see options or solutions or opportunities outside of this category, categorical way that we think. And by the way, conversely, if I said that operating room that day was filled with nurses, you would picture ladies. But you and I both know that the nursing industry is, has an increasing number of males, not, female, more than, not just females, in that industry. But again, we have ways of thinking. We have assumptions. We have expectations. They're blinders is what they are that keep us from seeing perhaps a reality that's, that's just as real as anything that might be within the boundaries. In fact, let me take it a step further. It's odd to say this in church, but if I were to say that you use the term hip-hop artist, I bet you I know what you'd picture. Maybe not one individual, though there are individuals at the top of that uh, genre, but you would picture an African-American. In fact, I know what you picture, a young African-American male with lots of bling-bling, okay? That's, that's what we think of, we think of hip-hop. But you and I both know over the last decade, there's been a number of white hip-hop artists. Uh, the Beastie Boys and Eminem, and I'm sure you've memorized all their lyrics. But um, these guys have been, and they're not just, they're, they're, they're hip-hop artists. But again, they don't fit the mold. They don't fit the expectation or the assumption. So we, we don't think about that all the, all, all the time. If I use the term randomly here, if I were to use the term public transportation, my guess is something comes to your mind immediately. In fact, if you've lived in big cities in the past, it was something negative probably, like dirty, late, crowded, smelly, unsafe. 
And because of all these stereotypes, the major cities of America are trying to clean up their act and try to, try, try to build a new image for public transportation. But my point is simply this. We have assumptions. Every one of us in this room have assumptions. I talked about this last week. Brad talked about this two weeks ago. And assumptions are necessary. We could not go through a typical week unless we had assumptions because you could not consciously think of all the things you have to think about from the stuff that's happening to you in any given seven days. But the assumptions also get us in trouble. Let me illustrate. When you drove here this morning, you typically have an assumption when you drive to church, or really anywhere for that matter, that you're going to drive on the right-hand side of the road so you can just hustle along, and you have an assumption that everybody else coming at you is also on the right-hand side of the road, and you'll miss each other. But that expectation was a little different this morning, wasn't it? Right? You drive a little more slow. Be careful, be careful, be careful, you know? Because you saw some cars in the ditch yesterday. thought, oh, you could not have that assumption. Snow changes our assumptions. All I'm saying is, we need these. We have to have these. But our assumptions on a regular basis get us in trouble. And God knows that. And I'm going to suggest that we all have assumptions about God. You bring with you in here today certain assumptions about your creator. Based on past people you've met, sermons you've heard, churches you've been in, bad experiences you've had, whatever. And you bring with it, in fact, I do too, certain assumptions, get this, that are wrong. We have good ones, we have good ones, but we also have bad ones. And so, when Jesus shows up 2,000 years ago, when God sends his son to the earth, he shakes us up a bit by doing the unexpected. And I be believe he screams to us, you gotta think this one through. You can't just fall into the trap of staying in a subconscious state where you, oh yeah, God, I know what he's gonna do. So, what I wanna do this morning is I wanna, I wanna look at a passage of scripture that you have heard or read dozens of times over the years. It's part of the Christmas story, but I want you to listen with fresh ears this morning. Do you all have fresh ears? Okay. Um, it's Luke chapter two. We're gonna read the first seven verses of Luke chapter two. And, uh, and then I look at, um, I wanna look at what God does on purpose just to, um, to bring to us the unexpected, okay? Uh, Luke two, starting with verse one. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That would be the Roman Empire, which was most of the known world back then. This was the first census that, that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own hometown to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth into Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now again, I know you've heard that story before. In fact, maybe you've heard it so many times that you don't even feel like there are any unexpected things. Oh yeah, Jesus, manger, donkeys, camels, shepherds, got it. But may I say to you today that this place where God chose for this all to start was a most unusual place for him to start this journey. 
Once again, God does the unexpected and teaches us something about himself. By the way, can I just say it up front? Wouldn't you assume that if the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords were to show up on earth, it would be in a way different place and time. In fact, it would not just be in the first century, it would probably be in the 21st century where he could use social media, you know, to broadcast what's happened. And, you know, it would be out in the middle of the public square, there'd be cameras rolling, tweets flowing, you know, that sort of thing. But instead, he's born in this in this barn, without the help of personal physicians. In fact, infant mortality rate was, was much higher back then, and you would expect in a dirty, smelly place, certainly infant mortality, the, the chances would go up. Oh my gosh, what are you doing, God? In fact, may I just for a moment contrast the birth of this royal baby to the royal baby that was born earlier this year. I alluded to him last week. George was born to William and Kate earlier this year. Remember this? In fact, we have a photo. There's what they look like shortly after the birth. Uh, she's always got that little prey wave. Isn't she pretty? Okay. And this little baby, George, was, was born. Well, you heard about this as soon as it happened, even if you didn't want to hear about it. I mean, CNN, Fox News, New York Times, tweets were flowing, paparazzi was taking pictures. I mean, everybody in the world, if they're awake, heard about this birth. But we didn't think that was weird. We thought, well, it's a royal baby. Of course we ought to be hearing about this. Of course. That's what you would expect. It's a royal baby. And by the way, this royal baby was born in a very appropriate way. George was born in a very special wing, a special wing, not an ordinary wing, a special wing at St. Mary's Hospital. And not one, not two, not three, but four physicians attended his birth. I think he's going to do okay. In addition to that, there were lots and lots of medical professionals, and every instrument was sanitized, every moment was overseen and managed to the T to make sure everything would go well. And you hear that and go, of course, he's the royal baby. And I'm just saying, isn't it odd that God does it not only a little different, way different, like way unexpected. And I'm thinking he does the unexpected to shake us up because we think we understand him. And he wants us to come to him fresh. And so he teaches us at least a half a dozen things by this setting and his birth. So if you're making mental notes today, in the remaining minutes I have, I want to walk through six items that God teaches us with the contrast of the birth of this, this baby, okay? So let's jump in. Number one, first of all, you, you know this already, so let me say the obvious, but then I'm going to unpack it. First of all, we notice that the manger was hidden instead of public. He was hidden instead of public. Now, I think you would agree with me that this primitive barn, which really in reality was a cave, was out back of this motel. So in pitch black dark, Mary and Joseph are trying to grope their way. They knock on the inn, the door of the inn. Remember the innkeeper story? There's no room. I'm really sorry. This is, well, actually, I do have a barn out back if you'd like to give birth there, you know. So Mary and Joseph go out to this cave, and, and there's this, this, this manger. That's where he's born. It's a manger. Now, you know what a manger is, don't you? In fact, we're going to show you a picture real quick. There was this actually what it looked like. It wasn't this nice, nicely built wooden and nailed together manger, you know, this trough. It's this stone, and you can tell from it that it's hard and bumpy and probably cold on a chilly night. In fact, I actually have a piece of the rock well, this isn't actually a piece of the stick, but I'd sell it if it was. But anyway, um, this, is, this is the kind of rock that Jesus was born on. Now, I just want you to get a picture of this. this you can't, I can't pass it around. I'm sorry. But this is hard and bumpy. 
Oh my gosh, ladies who have given birth to anyone in this room, this is not what you want to be on when you give birth to a baby, nor do you want to place your baby on this thing. And then, it's hidden. This is just weird. I mean, again, wouldn't you think if the whole point of this is God wants his message to be heard, and by the way, that was the point. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he says, go tell all the world. That was his plan, market this message. He's born in a hidden place? What's up with that? Can I tell you what I think? I believe that we see, beginning with the manger and all through his 33 and a half years in the life of Jesus, he's often doing hidden things. He's often doing the opposite of what you might think if you're, if you're trying to market your message. In fact, have you ever noticed as you've read the life of Christ in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus hiding himself. Sometimes he withdraw from the crowd and hide himself. Many times he would do a miracle and then tell the people that just had the miracle performed on them, now don't tell anybody. Have you ever read that before? What's, what, what are you doing? In fact, I've often wondered, is that reverse, psycho is that reverse psychology? Is he just saying, don't tell anybody? You know, you know what I mean? And if, I'm going to go broadcast it. I'm going to tweet, you know, or whatever. I don't know. But, but it's very weird. You see, beginning with a manger, but not ending with a manger. All through his life, it's this hidden thing. It's almost like he doesn't want it to be known. But you know that's not true. And so, we read these instances where Jesus hides himself or wants to hide the miracles or wants to hide the teachings. In fact, very often he'd teach and he'd say to his disciples, now this is hidden from them. And Paul writes later, after it's all over, the life of Jesus, at least the physical life of Jesus. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, if these things are hidden, they are hidden to those who are perishing. So, in contrast to what we would do if we were in charge, and listen, you and I would both agree, wouldn't we? We live in a day where we really want to build a platform. In fact, if you're starting a business, you know what you're gonna be told for? You gotta build your platform. You ever heard this word, platform? Which means get on social media, have a Facebook page, and really make it look good. That's something new every day. Then you gotta, you gotta get on Twitter, gotta have a Twitter handle, and tweet. And then on Facebook, you need to get likes, shares, winks, all kinds of stuff should be happening. And you can, you can never get enough followers. Am I not right? If you have a business and you're on social, you can never get enough followers, you can never get enough likes, you can never get enough shares. That's just how we think. And by the way, the kids that are growing up in this world that we created get it. Last year, a nationwide poll was taken among university students in North America. And they asked the students, once you graduate, what do you really want to do in life? Do you know what their number one? Their, now, there were many answers. But the number one goal was, I want to get rich. The number two goal was, I want to get famous. Now, that may not shock you, but instead of finding a meaningful purpose in life or finding my talent so I can add value to the world, it was get rich and famous. Of course, that's the thing we scream all over the place. And God, in an almost counterintuitive way, says, actually, I'm gonna stay hidden. Now, can I suggest to you why he might do it this way? It's not that he wants to make it impossible for us to find him. He wants us to find him. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, he says, you will search for me and you will find me when you seek with all your heart. I think the hidden thing is not an impossible thing. It's simply that when you have to seek, you will own your faith. Won't be mom and dad's faith. Won't be my Sunday school teacher's faith. Won't be my pastor's faith. It'll be mine. In fact, think with me for just a minute. Many of you in this room, not all of you, but many of you in this room, grew up going to church. 
You just, all your life, you've been in church. You were, you were attending church nine months before you were born. You know what I'm talking about, okay? Every week you're in church, Sunday school story, Noah, Moses, Abraham, you heard all the stories. And isn't it true, it's very easy when it's spoon-fed to you like that? It's, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. But you don't really own it. It's actually my family. And then sometime in your past, you went through a crisis, a tragedy, something horrible, or maybe just a fork in the road happened. And you were forced to fish or cut bait. You were forced to go one way or the other. And you chose God, perhaps, and all of a sudden now, you own that thing, right? Because you had to struggle for it, you had to fight for it, you had to seek for it. And I'm just saying to you today, if you're a lifer, okay, if you've just been in church for a long time, sometimes the hiddenness is all about you seeking so you can really own it. And it's yours, not someone else's. Let me do truth number two. The second truth we pick up here in this little story is that this manger was modest versus pretentious. Now, I've already alluded to this fact, but let me go deeper here. It was modest versus pretentious. I think you would agree with me that this barn, this cave, was a most humble place for such a sacred event. But again, it was on purpose. God's very proactively going after this specific place. By the way, he's God. He can pull strings. He can make things happen. He could have been born in Jerusalem. Could have been born in Rome. I mean, that would have been the place to really market the thing. But he's born in this, in this modest place. And by this modest moment, continues on through his whole life again. Again, what started in the cradle goes all the way to the cross. All through his years, there's humility and modesty that marks the life of Jesus. In fact, Jesus even said it himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, do you remember this? He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. Almighty God says, I just want you to know, I'm humble. And Jesus models this for us, not because he had to be humble. He's God Almighty, for Pete's sake. He walks on water, he raises the dead, he heals people, he's awesome, okay? But he models this because he knows that if we catch this same virus, this modesty, humility virus, then we see a bigger picture. Am I not right in this? When you meet a very genuinely humble person, I don't mean false humility, but a really truly humble person, don't you immediately go, oh my gosh, how mature? Because a humble person, by definition, knows it isn't all about them, there were other people that helped them get where they have gotten, other resources and networks and money and friends and, and, and bosses and so forth. And so they're very grateful and humble. They always go together because you see our bigger picture. I think this modesty thing screams to us that you'll actually have better perspective when it's not about you. It will be truly about our Heavenly Father. But again, this stands in stark contrast to us. We live in a day of absolute self-expansion. It shows up when we parent our children, we say, make sure you get a lot of playing time. Make sure you get a trophy. And then, as we grow older, it is, it's building a platform, it's, it's, it's doing this and that. And so, we have, we have evolved in this sense over the last 50 years. Can I give you some empirical proof? I just mentioned a survey. Can I give you another survey? I work a lot with young people. We work with a lot of high school and college students in the nonprofit that I lead. A high school survey has been given nationwide to teenagers in North America since 1955. So you're in it, and so am I. At least our generation was in it. Every year, one of the questions they ask of teenage kids is, are you a very important person? 
Are you a VIP? In 1959, 7% of high school students said, I'm very important. <laughs> and that's probably just the teenage spirit, don't you think, coming out just, yeah, I'm awesome, you know? In 2009, 50 years later, do you know what the number was? 84% of our high schoolers today say, I'm awesome. I am a VIP. Now, I love these kids. I'm not saying they're wicked or evil, but can you see? This is a picture of our world, isn't it? We're in a day of, mm-hmm, oh yeah, it's me. Selfie, you know? That's what we do. And we don't think that's weird. We just about, you know, we're all about ourselves. And so God screams to us from a manger, actually, it's just the opposite. The one who has every reason to take a selfie, Jesus, he doesn't. He never does. Okay, let's keep going. Number three. The third, I think, insight we pull from this simple story was the manger was dirty, not sanitized. I realize that sounds weird, but think about this consciously right now. He picks a dirty place. My goodness gracious, I think you, uh, you would agree with me. We treat infants today with the utmost care, and we need to. Their immune system's not been built up yet. They've only spent nine months in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a mother, in their mother's womb, so they don't have the immune system. You don't want to be in a place that's not clean. Oh my goodness, you, you want to be in the, most, in the cleanest place you can be born. And yet Jesus is born, pardon me, in this stable. There are animals making deposits in the corner of this place. There's germs everywhere. And by the way, we live in a day today where we're more, more germophobic than we've ever been. Afraid to touch doorknobs on the door in the restroom. Shake my elbow, would you? You know, I mean, good grief. But, but Jesus is born in this germy, smelly, stenchy place loaded with germs. Moms in this room, if you were married, wouldn't this be, wouldn't it drive you bonkers? Joseph, don't touch him. Do not touch him. You know what I mean? Shepherds, do not get within 10 feet. If you've touched a lamb, do not touch my baby. You know? You would. You would just say that because you're thinking about the child. And, and yet Jesus, he can do whatever he wants. He's, he's born in this dirty, unsanitized place. The manger is a trough where saliva from animals and ugh. I'm not even going to say any more about that. You just get the picture. But can I tell you something? It doesn't stop here. This thing that begins in dirty all the way through Jesus' life, have you ever stopped to think how much he associates himself with dirt? It's uncanny. First of all, not only does he hang out with dirty people, I mean, criminals, prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves, it's pretty awful. In fact, if the religious leaders had anything against him, it was that he's hanging out with the wrong people. These are dirty people. Because religion had come to be, it's about cleanliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness, after all. Rules and rituals and robes and everything else. And, 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 and Jesus, dirty manger, dirty people he's hanging around. Do you ever notice more than once he's drawing something in the dirt or writing a message in the dirt for others to see? And did you ever notice sometimes his miracles involve dirt? In fact, Munta, remember this one? He actually takes a clump of dirt, spits in it. Well, that's even better now, saliva. Makes mud, puts it on the guy's eyes and says, go wash your hands. You won't be blind anymore. You'll be able to see. But he does it with dirt. He doesn't have to. But I think he's telling us something. I think he maybe he's just saying, I just want you to know, I'm okay with dirt. And by the way, if the only thing that keeps you from God is you feel a little bit unworthy, a little bit dirty yourself, I just want you to know, 
I'm all right with dirt. I'm very approachable. In fact, I probably got more dirt than you do. When I walked this earth, I was dirty all the time. In fact, I, I was started with dirt and I ended with dirt. The nails were not sanitized that I was crucified with. Everything was dirt. And I think he was saying, I'm a God that you can come to. I'm real. I'm authentic. I'm genuine. It's not this distant thing that the Pharisees have told you about. Oh my gosh. Jesus is real and he's approachable and he's accessible. And I think he's telling you, if, if what's kept you from really, really being a true believer is the dirt you've got in your past, stop it. It's okay. I actually like dirt. I spent a lot of time in dirt. If you're a parent in here and you read bedtime stories to your kids growing up, you might have read one written years ago called The Velveteen Rabbit. I don't know if you remember that story, but The Velveteen Rabbit's now a classic. But I mean, it's a children's story that was loaded with a bunch of truths in it for adults to learn, so we moms and dads could read it to our children and go, ooh, my, you know? But, um, but in this one particular chapter, I'm gonna read you a part of this children's story, so this is your bedtime story today. Um, in The Velveteen Rabbit, it's a story about a nursery with a bunch of toys and children. And the toys can talk to each other. In fact, much like Pixar's Toy Story, they're, they're all intermingling and talking, and they're learning and teaching from each other about life. And I want you to listen in on a very short conversation between the Velveteen Rabbit, who's kind of new in the nursery, and the Skin Horse, who's been around for a long time. Here's what he says. The Skin Horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old <laughs> that his brown coat was bald in patches, and he showed the, it showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful. And only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understand all about it. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came in to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Well, does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen, excuse me, that's why it often doesn't happen to people, listen to this, who break easily or have sharp edges, who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you're real, 
You can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. I think Jesus was saying, I just want you to know, I'm real. The reason I didn't pick a palace is because you'd never identify with a palace. But you might identify with dirt. Let's go on. Number four, it was a place, this manger was a place to give, not a place to receive. Can I remind you of something that maybe you've never thought about? I don't know. But you know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough. There's food put in the manger. Don't you think that was put in the manger by Mary 2,000 years ago? What was put in this manger was something that nourished, fed, and filled the lowliest of creatures. Precisely. That's why we put Jesus there. It's a picture. And I'm simply saying, I think it was a great picture that it was Bethlehem, which by the way, did you know Bethlehem means house of bread? That's what the town name means. And the trough was a place for food. That Jesus, I just want you to know when I show up, I'm not showing up for you to say, um, oh, here he is, kiss his ring, bow down, although it's very appropriate to bow down. He was saying, when I come to you, I'm gonna model a different way than you have come to expect. In the 400 years between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, there were 400 years of silence, and we had erected all kinds of weird notions about God. The Pharisees came up with hundreds of extra laws to keep, and the Sadducees started believing things that just weren't even true about there's no heaven or hell, blah, 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 blah. And so Jesus shows up and says, I gotta set the record straight. I'm coming to serve, not to be served. I'm coming to feed, not to be fed. I'm coming to give, not to be given to. And I'm modeling this for you. I think what he's screaming to us, being born in a trough, a rocky trough, what, this was his nature. And when we become Christ-like, when we become like him, when we start following him, this is one of the first symptoms, if I can say it that way, of following him, that we become lovers and givers. That our nature, which was once, hold on to what you got, keep hold of it, don't give it away, this is yours. It was an abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset. Listen to me, we are never more like God than when we're giving. In fact, isn't it true we're moved when we hear stories of people giving sacrificial? I get, teared, I get teary just thinking about stories of, of people that, and you know why we do? Because God hard, hardwired us inside that we know we're connecting to the one who made us when we start giving or seeing giving going on. That's why Christmas is about gifts. It's not just about Saint Nick and all the other stuff. This is a natural God-like thing to want to give. Let me just illustrate for a minute. I told you I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, Atlanta is a, it's a great city, and there's something viral going on in our city right now, in the metro Atlanta area. Um, it's it's kind of cool. In fact, it's been so big and so viral that um, it's made the radio and TV, just different news reports. Um, you know, I think, that Chick-fil-A restaurants are based in Atlanta, Georgia, okay? And whatever you think about Chick-fil-A, I think you would agree, good chicken, good service, right? Okay? So there's these drive through lines, just like most fast food restaurants have. And what starts happening on almost a daily basis is somebody will drive up to the drive-thru window, they've ordered their food, and when they give their cash or their credit card to pay for their food, they'll say to the clerk, oh, by the way, I want to not only pay for my meal, I want to pay for the car behind me. And they have no idea who's behind them. 
It may be a van full of teenagers, which would be a scary thing. But they just say, whoever's, whoever's back there, whatever they've ordered, and they've already figured out what the cost would be of the next order, just, I want, you to, pay, I want to pay for that. So they'll pay for both of them, and then they'll drive away. Well, you can imagine when that next car pulls up, the clerk goes, I know this sounds strange, but yours is free today. Free? How come? Well, that guy that just drove off that you can't thank just paid for yours. I don't even know him. I know you don't know him. It's weird, but he did it. Well, most of the people are so moved, they don't know what to say. And it's just lunch, but, and so you know what a lot of times they do? They pay for the guy behind them. They go, well, I, I don't know who's behind me, but I'm paying for them. I just talked to a Chick-fil-A operator. He said their record this year is 71 cars in a row. Yeah. Now, can I stop for a second? Yes, you can clap for God. Yeah. Did you hear yourselves just then? Many of you went, ooh. Do you know why you did that? That's the God part of you coming out. It is. You're moved by that, because you think. Because you think, this is what's supposed to happen. We're not supposed to be fighting each other, scraping to get ahead. In fact, he said, if you'll live this way, I'll take care of this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things. I'll make sure it somehow works out. You will know. You will figure it out. You just trust me. So Jesus is born in a trough to feed. Let's keep moving. Um, two more. The fifth little insight I think we pick up from this manger is this. The manger was a place that was uncomfortable, not comfortable. Now that could go without saying, but can we just camp out here for just a couple of minutes? Um, there was nothing cozy about the rock manger that night, okay? There's nothing cozy, nothing comfortable, nothing, nothing fuzzy and warm. There was no, I don't know, as far as we can tell, there were not any, you know, sort of mattresses or anything like that. Uh, in fact, they were outside. Remember, it's kind of a cave. There's no heating and air conditioning. It was outside and hard and cold and smelly. It was just, again, just the opposite of where you'd want to have your baby. But I think it was a message. I think he's proactive again. He's very intentional. I think that he's saying, I just want you to know when I come, instead of what you might expect, I'm going to be uncomfortable from, the day, from day one. And by the way, most of my days, again, from cradle to cross, will be very uncomfortable. My life is going to be one uncomfortable moment after another, confronting Pharisees, weeping over Lazarus' death, healing, feeding. It's just going to be uncomfortable moments because I'm modeling something for you. When something costs something, it's often worth more. You've all told your children this, haven't you? Come on, you guys that are raised kid. Yeah, if you have to pay for it, you're going to appreciate it more. If you have to wait for it, you have to appreciate it more. Do I sound like a father right now? We, we all say that we sound like the old fogey that said I walked in the snow uphill both ways to school, you know? But, but I think this is true. I think it's true about human nature. Jesus says, my whole life is going to be very costly and uncomfortable. Discomfort will mark my life. But I want you to know, for you as well, for you as well as you live your life, this is a picture that I want you to get. When something costs you something, it's worth something. Now, that doesn't mean you pay for your salvation. You can't. You can't afford it. He died on the cross to pay for our salvation. But in our fellowship of him, we don't just, just when it's convenient or quick or 140 characters. Come on. We do it because it's right. And we follow the one who modeled the way of discomfort. 
Just a few years ago, I was teaching leaders, Christian leaders in the underground church in a limited access country in Asia. I'm not going to name the country, but this country is very anti-God. In fact, so much so that all the pastors in the underground church that showed up tossed their cell phones in a big bag because they didn't want to be traced by the government as to where they were meeting. So that bag was taken off the property. As I shook hands with many of the pastors, a great number of them didn't have all their fingers. They'd been cut off by the government for preaching the gospel there. It was a hard place to be a Christian. Well, I was teaching leadership, and I was thinking to myself all the while, you guys need to be teaching me. I have no clue the sacrifices you've made and the commitment you've, you've made to, to, to follow Jesus. And so I got into a conversation during one of the breaks with one of the pastors of the underground church, and I said, I'm just marvel at the commitment level and the sacrifice. How do you build this into your people and into your church? And he just smiled very politely, and then very graciously, it was not a cut down, very graciously he said, well, I think I know how it happens. He said, when you lead someone to Christ in America, you lead them to a nice, comfortable church with padded seats and central heating and air conditioning. When we lead someone to Christ, we teach them how to die. Well, of course, faith means everything. Sometimes it's all they have. And we have Jesus and a whole gob of things. In fact, a survey was taken in 1963 and 2013, 50 years. In 1963, Americans were asked, how many things do you really need to live comfortably? And in 1963, Americans said, about 50 things. And that's quite a bit, curling irons, etc. okay? We need these things. Do you know what it was? Over 300 things. Now, maybe you do need 300 things. Maybe, maybe you do. But I'm just saying, really? Really? I don't know. I'm just thinking, the more things I have, it's not wicked or evil, but the more things I have, the more I lean on those things. And I get really comfortable. In fact, my goal is nest and be comfortable. One more. The final little insight we gain is, is really simple, but it's this one. This manger was a place that was vacant rather than crowded. You know the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph did try the crowded place first. They went to the inn. In fact, they saw the sign or heard the words, no vacancy. It was full of people and noise and clutter. So they went from there to this place out back that was open for business. It was empty, except for the animals. It's, it's empty. Plenty of room. At the risk of sounding really syrupy right now, listen to me. I think God actually prefers places that are empty. In fact, when he tries to go to people and places that are full, we're so distracted with our fullness, we really don't need you. God's our spare tire, not our steering wheel. And so, he tends to show up most and best and most vividly in empty places. To which makes me ask the question, are there pockets of your life that as you sit here in this marvelous time of year, you're going, I got emptiness. I got a pocket or two that's just vacant. Perfect. He loves empty places. He loves to come to empty places. He shows up best in empty places. It's just the opposite of what you might think. So, years after this birth of Jesus took place, the Apostle Paul writes about the ways of God. He talks about expecting the unexpected. And he summarizes everything I've just said in this talk in a few words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, I want to just read you a passage as I wrap things up. 
that I think so says what I've been trying to say. Just relax and listen. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Paul writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world to despise, excuse me, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one, so that no one may boast before him. Maybe that's just it. The only thing we're boasting on is him. Because he knew what we needed was not more information or wisdom, not more data, not more rules, not more laws, not a change of mind. We needed to be connected to him or reconnected to him. So he comes in the form of a person, not a writing. Let me wrap up this way. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story. It's become my favorite short story I've ever read in my life. Many of you know Ernest Hemingway. Um, he wrote the story called The Capital of the World, and it was really a story about, uh, about an estranged relationship between a father and his teenage son. These two had very strong wills. They were both very stubborn, and so they were bickering and arguing on a daily basis. I mean, if a topic would come up, one would say it was black, one would say it was white, and they would just go at it. They would just bicker and argue and, and, and squibble and squabble all through the day until finally the son had had it up to here. The son basically said to the dad, if that's the way you want it, then I'm out of here. The dad said, well, that's the way it's going to be. And the son left, slammed the door, and never returned home again. Many years later, according to the story, the father is ailing and aging. And he suddenly realizes, I may pass away and never see my son again and never talk to him, never make things right. I've got to find him. And so he's thinking to himself, I have no idea where he went. And so, as Ernest Hemingway would write it, he went to Madrid. Most of his stories take place in Spain. He goes to Madrid, the capital of the country. But Madrid is this highly populated city, and he doesn't know where to begin. And so the father decides to go to the newspaper. He lays down some cash on the counter, and he wants to take a full-page ad out in the paper. And this is how the ad read. Dear Paco, that was the name of his son. Dear Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me on the steps of the Capitol building at noon on Friday. I love you, Papa.
Well, the father showed up just a few minutes before noon, only to find that not only did his son show up, but there were hundreds of young men named Paco showing up, just hoping, just hoping that maybe it was their father. Do you know what I think God's saying to us today? Just meet me on the steps. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray now that you would get our hearts in the right place. We do have assumptions, we have expectations, we think we know it all. So thank you for shaking us up by being born in a rock trough. Lord, I pray for everyone here that you would somehow um, help us to see things we couldn't see. Help us to experience you and celebrate you in a way we've never had in the past this Christmas. Now, with your heads bowed, I want to pray one more prayer. Every week we have folks come to Northridge that maybe are here for the first time, or maybe you've been in church for a while, but maybe you've been out for a while, and you would say, I've never really taken that first step with God. I know a lot about him, but I don't know him. I've been to church, but I've never invited him to come into my life and be my savior, my personal savior. I don't know if I died tonight, I would go to heaven. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. And if this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, I just want you to kind of pray it in your own words, or my words, but phrase by phrase, as I pray, I want you to ask him in. Let's do it. Heavenly Father, thank you for doing the unexpected. Thank you for leaning in and coming to us first and just saying, please meet me. Jesus, thank you for coming to the cross and dying for my sin. Thank you for the forgiveness of all of my sin. Right now, I invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. God, thanks for the gift of everlasting life with you. Now, God, give me the strength to see you and to trust you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, before I let you go, one more thing. If you just prayed that prayer, can you do me a favor? That is the smartest decision you'll ever make in your life. I know that sounds pretty audacious. But on your way in, you got a program. And if you'll notice on the inside of the program, there's a connection card. In fact, it even says connection card on the inner flap. You can actually tear it off. If you would just fill out that card with your contact info and then check that box at the bottom that simply says, today I prayed to receive Christ into my life. We, and, and then what you could do is when you walk out of the sanctuary, if you can just put it in one of the boxes near the doors on the way in, we would love to follow up, send you some things, and help you get started in your relationship with God. Did I mention I love you guys? Have a great Christmas. God bless you.